What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. A giant in the pro-life movement has passed away, and we're here to talk about the legacy that he left behind. Welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a podcast that trains you how to defend the pro-life position effectively and persuasively. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing this morning, Nathan? Not too bad. Starting to dry out from all the rain we're getting. Today we have a special guest. We have Eric Scheidler who is joining us. Eric Scheidler is the executive director of the Pro-Life Action League, founded in 1980 by his father, veteran pro-life leader Joe Scheidler. The league recruits, equips, and trains pro-life Americans to put their convictions into action at the grassroots level through peaceful direct action. Under Eric's leadership, the league's headquarters, City of Chicago, has become ground zero for pro-life activism nationally. Eric, welcome to the show. So good to be with you. Today, we're here to talk about the legacy of, of Joe Scheidler, who, who passed away on January 18th of this year at the age of 93 at his home in Chicago. Joe paved the way for pro-life activism, especially for people of future generations. And uh, so with the, with the sad news of his passing, we invited Eric onto the show to, uh, to talk about what Joe has meant for the pro-life movement and the various ways in which he's actually paved the way for those of us to continue doing pro-life activism. But before we begin that discussion, the first question that I like to ask all of our guests, Eric, is uh, just kind of an icebreaker question to get to know you a little bit. Why are you pro-life? You know, I have the worst possible answer to that question of anyone oh. because I don't remember ever not being pro-life. I cannot remember being introduced to the subject of abortion. I went to my very first pro-life event when I was six years old. I had just turned six. It was 1972. So you can do some math on that, figure out where I'm at now. And my mom goaded my dad into not watching the Notre Dame football game that day, as he had planned to, but instead going down to the Civic Center in downtown Chicago for a rally against any change in Illinois' law protecting unborn children uh, from abortion. My, my two brothers and I, uh, I, I have three brothers now, but at the time it was just the three of us. We all went uh, down to uh, the Civic Center with my parents, and my dad was handed a flyer. Uh, some listeners and viewers may have even seen this flyer because it's been around the park movement for a long time. It's called Life and Death, first created by uh, Dr. Jack Wilkie, an early pioneer in the pro-life movement, to illustrate what abortion really did to unborn children. And the, the, that flyer included a picture of 
a, a dumpster, like a bucket um, of aborted babies aborted very late in pregnancy up in Canada where abortion was already legal. One of the babies in that bucket of corpses reminded my dad of my baby picture. For some reason, he saw a connection there. And at that moment, abortion went from being you know, a, a moral atrocity, something that, that no one ever thought about or talked about, and he had never really considered, other than as a horror you would try to turn away from. And it became for him instead something very, very personal. It, he recognized that his heart had been moved and that he had some kind of responsibility for this injustice. And so he began to research abortion. He started reading everything he could get his hands on, um, including books like uh, Father um, Marx's book, uh, the Death Peddlers, which was all about the efforts during the 1960s to try to change America's laws about abortion. And it wasn't, uh, he didn't even know at this time that there was a court case that had been awaiting a ruling for quite some time. I think the oral arguments in Roe v. Wade were actually heard in, in um, 1972, perhaps in the, even in 71. They sat on that case for a long time. He didn't even know it was coming. So when that case got handed down, uh, uh, obviously, on January 22nd, 1973, uh, and the news broke the next day, he was homesick with the flu and saw the article in the newspaper about the Chicago Daily News uh, about that ruling. And he couldn't believe it. He was absolutely devastated. And that's why I have no memory of becoming pro-life. I grew up inside of it. I can't tell you the first time that I saw an abortion victim photo, but I do remember being in my basement as a kid and watching film strip. There was film strips back then, you know, with the, the fan blowing a chunk. He show, he would show film strips in the basement of abortion uh, from a, again, a, a series of images that uh, Jack Wilkie put together. So I, I always have to chuckle when people say that seeing abortion pictures is traumatizing for children because the incredible healthy psychology that my brothers and sisters and I and all of my children and nieces and nephews have, have exhibited over the years would be a counter argument to that. I grew up looking at these pictures. I grew up being against abortion. Even when I was a hardened liberal atheist in my 20s, I was still against abortion. I didn't have really good reasons. I, I grasped and searched around for some sort of a gr grounding for an argument against abortion, uh, but failing to find one because there is none. Uh, I finally had to look for a transcendent answer to that question. So I've, I haven't answered your question, but I hope I have broken the ice and introduced people a little bit to both Joe and Eric Scheidler's uh, life stories. Yeah, m most definitely. How, how much later, because you, you talked about being a liberal atheist and not being able to find yeah. a, a good argument for the pro-life position. Was it your journey to try and find a good argument for the pro-life position that ultimately led to you becoming a Christian? Well, you know, I think it's a little dangerous to try to figure out the chess moves that the Holy Spirit is working on at any given moment or even in the past. But I will say that the search for an answer for why abortion is wrong was a major influence in my time of questioning, mm. especially as I, I was away from the church for about, you know, 10 years. And during that time, I, uh, I was really exploring moral truth and trying to find a, a foundation for why I should be a good husband, why I should be a faithful husband, why I should uh, be an honest citizen, you know, why I should treat other people with with respect. And the abortion issue was always a very central one for me. And it kept pushing and pushing and pushing me to search deeper. There were other influences. Um, 
I had an awakening on the effect of contraception on on our attitudes towards sexuality, towards marital intimacy, towards the gift of life, and what that would mean for me. Um, I encountered many good Christians as a, a writing. I was a college professor, writing teacher, and in, in literature, and I noticed that somehow my Christian students were better students. You know what? My Muslim students, my Jewish students, my Hindu students were better students than my agnostic, atheist, or, you know, kind of lackadaisical Christian students. Students who had some kind of faith life, some sort of spiritual life, some sort of eyes on the transcendent. They wrote more interesting papers. They turned in their assignments on time more often. They were more attentive to the uh, critique that I offered. There was just an openness there. And I thought, how puzzling that people who believe in mythology, that people who are deluded into religious faith are somehow brighter and smarter students. This didn't add up for me. And they seemed to have a joy. They seemed to have a peace about them, a purpose about them that attracted me. So there were a lot of different influences uh, on my conversion. But the, the seeking of an answer for abortion, why it's right or why it's not right, uh, was a, absolutely central to my journey. Yeah, you you talked about uh, the possibility of Roe v. Wade having been argued the year or even two years prior. Uh, I've been watching actually a lot of YouTube attorneys talk about the, the court process and what all goes on in, in that sort of thing. And based on what they tell me, it can actually take a long time for uh, for a judge and or a jury to render their verdict. So it wouldn't surprise me if the if the oral arguments for Roe v. Wade had gone on for a couple of years before finally having a judgment rendered in, in January of 1973. Yeah, it, it was interesting timing. We've Anyone who's been to the March for Life has wondered why, oh, why couldn't they have had, passed their ruling in you know, May or something when all the, mm. the cherry blossoms are out. <laughs> right. It yeah. uh, wasn't to be. I think there's some providence there, like there is in so many ways. I think the fact that we show up in Washington, D.C. to march in the middle of blizzards and, you know, all mm. that, I think that says a lot about the movement. Yeah, we're, we're definitely care enough about uh, unborn babies to be out there in the cold of winter to to march and, and make our voices known about uh, this atrocity that's that's been going on. So Joe was the founder of Pro-Life Action League. Is that that's correct? That's right. Okay. So could you explain a little bit about what Pro-Life Action League was founded to do? What, what's, what's sort of its, its niche here in the pro-life movement? And so let me back up a little bit. So in 1973, after Roe versus Wade was handed down, my dad became obsessed with the abortion issue and, and the injustice of it. Started going to meetings and trying to organize things. He was frustrated by the lack of interest by the church and the media weren't really telling the story true. I mean, from day one, literally from day one, most of the media has been lying about Roe v. Wade. The Chicago Daily News actually got it right. Roe v. Wade and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton, stripped away every legal protection for unborn children through all of pregnancy. The news that day was, oh, abortion's a limited way allowed in the first trimester. That wasn't true. So anyway, my, my father uh, became obsessed with the issue, so much so that his boss at Sells um, Seabolt, this uh, prestigious uh, advertising firm where he was an account executive, uh, Pulled him aside. They, they were both, uh, you know, very serious Catholics, and and uh, I think he might have even uh, his boss might have even gone to Notre Dame, as well as which my dad did. He said, "Joe, I can tell that your your mind's not on your work. Um, clearly, this issue is important to you. We'd like to put you on a leave of absence so that you have insurance coverage, because uh, my mom was pregnant with my first baby daughter, my baby sister at that time, 
And I really think that you should dedicate yourself to this. This is clear. You have, you're a great PR guy. You've got great skills. You're, you're being called to bring these skills to the pro-life movement, maybe, or the right to life movement, it was, as it was known then. So my dad took the offer. He started the Chicago office for pro-life publicity and started going through the roles of his uh, parish and of his Notre Dame um, class to try to see if he could find some donors. He had a really tough time raising money. They were trying to uh, to just spread the news. They thought in a, if just a couple years of of sharing the truth about abortion, we'll be able to get a human life amendment and, and end the Holocaust. He and my mother uh, agreed to give five years to the pro-life movement. So <laughs> they should have been done when I was still in grade school. Instead, yeah. my dad was buried with his boots on. You know, he died with his boots on. Um, he had been calling donors. He was scheduled to give two pro-life talks the weekend that he died. Oh, uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so, so, so you know, he had this passion, but he had yet to find out how he was supposed to channel that passion. He took a job with the Illinois Right to Life Committee, the same organization that had organized that first rally at the Civic Center, where his heart was moved by that flyer that he saw. Uh, it was a part-time position. He quickly turned it into a full-time position um, because he was doing so much work and was able to bring so much attention and raise so much money for the organization. However, his methods were aggressive. He felt that it was critical to, to speak truth to power, as we say, to uh, confront the American people with the injustice of abortion, to confront the abortion industry, to go after the politicians. And, well, he was fired. He was eventually, after several years, he was fired by Illinois Right to Life. They don't like to, Illinois Right to Life is a great group and they're still around and they sometimes uh, get a little peeved when I mention that they fired Joe Scheidler, but they did. He yeah. started another organization called Friends for Life and it had some of the same problems, infighting and disagreements and it just wasn't working out. So finally in 1980, he founded the Pro-Life Action League with the smallest board possible under IRS rules. Uh, comprising himself, my mother, and a very close associate of theirs, Rosie Stokes, who was a volunteer on the streets. With that small board, they were able to do the kind of work my dad wanted to do. And so the mission of the pro-life movement is to empower and equip regular people. Anyone listening to this podcast, watching this podcast, that's the kind of person my dad wanted to reach. As I mentioned, he was disappointed when he went to the church he even had a priest say to him, look, Joe, if, if you're looking for quick change in the church and people to mobilize, you're looking in the wrong place. You're better off doing it on your own. He was disappointed by the politicians. I mean, think of people like Bill Clinton and Al Gore and Jesse Jackson and uh, 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 Ted Kennedy, who reversed their pro-life positions. Dick Durbin, notoriously pro-abortion Illinois senator, once spoke at the at the. Uh, March for Life in Springfield, where, when he was a state legislator uh, here in Illinois. So he was constantly being disappointed by the media, who couldn't even spell his name right until the last couple of years. Yeah. But he was never, ever disappointed by the regular people who say, God's calling me, Joe, what do I do? What do I do? And, and he kept getting asked, these, asked this question, what do I do? So he wrote a book. I'm going to grab it real quick. Okay, yeah, sure. He wrote this book, Closed, 99 Ways to Stop Abortion. This is his first book. Every chapter in here is a specific thing you can do. Get pro-life books into the public libraries. Expose the abortionist lies. Counter 
countercharge for false arrest. Get your information into programs, greetings, flyers, and just tons of practical things you could do, tiny little chapters. And it became the manual for pro-life activism. So people started to do pickets and sit-ins and do sidewalk counseling and write letters to the editor and visit the city council and all these different things inspired by this book. But they weren't the only ones inspired by this book, Close, 99 Ways to Stop Abortion. The abortion industry was also inspired by that book to sue him and the network of pro-life activists that he had been building under the name of the Pro-Life Action Network. So in 1985, 1986, a lawsuit was filed. This book came out in, I believe, 85 originally. A lawsuit was filed, Now versus Scheidler, National Organization for Women versus Scheidler, which ended up becoming the longest-running case in U.S. federal court history. Oh, wow. The only case ever to visit the, th- the Supreme Court three separate times and one in which he was ultimately vindicated by the U.S. Supreme Court in a unanimous 8-0 to zero ruling in 2006. So incredible adventure. But his passion was putting regular people to, to work. Uh, he had marched with Martin Luther King. In fact, he died on Martin Luther King Day. I think that's significant. Yeah. He saw, it was, this was 1965, he led a, uh, a group of students from Mundelein College, a girls' college in Chicago, which he was a teacher to visit Selma and march from Selma to Montgomery with Dr. King. He had some incredible adventures when he was out there. You know, he he had to be uh, protected by a couple of local uh, uh, good good guys who could see that he was getting in trouble with some of the the, the good old boys one time when he was walking around town alone. But he saw the power of regular people taking responsibility for addressing an injustice in in their time. In those days, it was racial injustice. It was the civil rights movement. And he saw what regular people's witness could do. And he wanted to bring that same energy to the pro-life movement. He wasn't content to wait for the politicians to pass the right law or the, up, the courts to uphold that law or the media to tell the truth uh, or the states to pass an amendment protecting human life. He wanted to get to work right now. Uh, as he always used to say, for the baby that's saved by abortion, because the the mom saw a picture on the roadway or a sidewalk council reached out and offered help, or they saw an ad in the paper for that child whose mother chose not to have an abortion. Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And that was what inspired him. And that's what the pro-life action league is all about. Yeah. Uh, actually before uh, our discussion here, Nathan and I were actually talking a bit about the the books that, that Joe had written. I'd, I'd like to get back to that one in just a moment. Uh, a question I had before that is uh, J- Joe has earned the nickname, the godfather of the pro of pro-life activism. What was it that he did for, for people to start referring to him like that? Well, I think it was the, first of all, the book. I mean, that, that was a big part of it. He was the guy who put it all together, all these different things that, that people were doing. Cause he would hear about somebody using a technique and he'd start to do it and then he'd write about it. Uh, but beyond that, you know, he part part of that um, uh, moniker comes from his sort of physical uh, self. I mean, he was a tall man. Uh, he always wore a, a a beard. He often was seen around town with a fedora. He would wear suits, a white suit in the summer and a black suit in the winter. He never almost never wore a pair of shorts the time I ever my entire life. Uh, and when he did, he always wore black socks with it up to his knees. Oh. Uh, dad socks, just classic. <laughs> Right. But um, uh, so that was it was partly just his image. I mean, he had this image, of, you know, the godfather, you know, kind of a thing. Right. Uh, you know, he he, uh, he sometimes carried around a, 
violin case. He actually had a violin and it was a joke, you know, the old trick of the Tommy gun that was in the violin case. He played around right. with those images, you know, he thought it was important to have fun and to laugh along the way and to project an image of, of boldness and courage. Um, but even more important than any of that was the fact that he really took people under his wing hmm. and visiting with people at his wake. I got to learn how intimately he had worked with um, different leaders around the country. Uh, a young man named, uh, he's not even that young anymore, Keith Mason, who uh, used to be with Personhood USA and now is with the Jerome Lejeune Foundation fighting for the rights of disabled okay. children. Uh, Keith came up and uh, told me that for years, my father had been sending him, you know, little clippings from the paper where he appeared or other little notes of encouragement ever since uh, he had met. We, we, we met him at the same time back in 2007 when uh, Keith was uh, trying to fight a Planned Parenthood facility that was opening up, a massive center, having been inspired to get more involved in the fight against abortion as a parish priest. And my father answered the phone. There wasn't a, you know, cordon of, of secretaries and, you know, menus in between him and someone calling him. He would pick up the phone and answer it. And uh, someone else like that was Nellie Gray, who founded the March for Life. She would answer her phone. And that was what part of what made her such an effective leader. So he would answer the phone and he would talk to people and he would encourage them. Uh, David B. Wright, uh, founder of 40 Days for Life, tells the story of how my dad cornered him one time at an event and said, look, you know, he was saying, Joe, I'm just I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I need maybe I should I should uh, just focus on my advertising career. And my dad said, on the contrary, you should quit your advertising career or I, he was a, a in pharmaceutical, a pharmaceutical marketing or something. You should quit that and do pro-life full time. And so David did that. He started working for American Life League. Then he founded 40 Days for Life. And it's a you know, historical career built on that exhortation from Joe. Really that he acted like a godfather. I mean, he earned that title. That's, that's how he got it, really. Yeah. He encouraged people. He advised people. He took them under his wing. He was, and he would never hold a grudge. He was treated badly by different people in the movement. He was fired from one organization. He was, you know, wouldn't wasn't allowed to speak by another because they were afraid of lawsuits. He wasn't allowed on a very famous Catholic television network for many years uh, because he had a lawsuit going. But he never held a grudge. He was always willing to accept an apology, and he was forgiving even when you didn't ask. And uh, I think all of that accounts for why he earned that name of uh, the godfather of pro-life activism and even more broadly people are calling him now the godfather of the whole pro-life movement right yeah well uh i do see that we've been getting some listeners if you have if you have any questions for eric please feel free to drop them in the comments we'll get that up on the screen and and ask them of our guest and uh nathan if you have any questions you know also feel free to jump in i'm not trying to monopolize the interview yeah. here so no no that's fine i'm enjoying that i'm enjoying listening to you eric good stuff uh, so getting back to the book, Closed 99 Ways to End Abortion, uh, you touched on it a little bit. I, I looked at it on Amazon, and uh, you, you can't find a reasonably priced copy on Amazon. Is there a place that someone might be able to go to to find a, a copy that, that won't really break the bank? Oh, you know, Closed is out of print. It's been out of print for a while. Mm -hmm. And when I first came on board with the Pro-Life Action League in the early 2000s, we had a project of revising the book. And we started to look at the new chapters we needed because there was nothing about online stuff on there. Um, the focus on Planned Parenthood that we've had in recent years. There were some things you can't do anymore, you know, because of the FACE Act and other laws. So it needs it badly needed an updating. But it seemed as if the time for a book like that maybe had passed and that those resources would be better put online. So we've moved a lot of the content, not directly, but the, the sort of topics of the book onto our website at ProLifeAction.org. And... Um, we've so that that's kind of in the direction we've gone 
Um, sometimes you can find them in used bookstores. People have found them there. Okay. Um, some of the used bookstores that are available online. Uh, they're in many, many libraries because we made a real effort to asking people to get the book in their library. So there may be an updated edition forthcoming um, because, you know, his death is a real time for sitting back and reckoning and thinking what might be appropriate. But it's a tough book to find in print these days. Yeah. And I think a book that talks about how to do pro-life activism online really well, I think would actually be a very, very helpful book to the pro-life movement, the modern pro-life movement, right. especially. One question that comes to mind based on that would be, what do you think your dad would say about where we're currently at with the most pro-abortion presidential administration in American history? What do you think he would say to the pro-life movement now? Or what was he saying to the pro-life movement just before he passed? Well, he was very, very deeply concerned about the Biden administration. And I, I have to wonder if in some way uh, God wasn't sparing him from having to behold yeah. that. I mean, he died two days before the inauguration. And uh, I thought of that as a, as a kind of a mercy for him because he was very, very troubled by yeah. the prospect of a Joe Biden presidency. Uh, however, we had talked quite a bit about, you know, the changing of the guard over the years. We talked about the um, we did a, kind of a list. You know, when did he get involved in pro-life? Well, Richard Nixon was president. Uh, uh, I believe he was still president. When was Clinton? You're a smart guy. Do you remember when he resigned? <laughs> when was that? I think uh, it was 73, actually. 73. Yeah. So he got involved with Richard Nixon and then Gerald Ford and then Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and, and a, first George Bush, um, Bill Clinton, second George Bush, Obama, Trump. List, you know, list now goes on to Joe Biden. And in season and out, our work at the Pro Life Action League has been pretty much the same. We're out there on the front lines speaking for the voiceless, the voiceless unborn child. We're there at the abortion centers appealing to the moms, appealing to the companions that are going in there with the women. We are praying. We are, you know, assisting people in pregnancy centers. We are telling the truth about abortion to our friends and neighbors. So in a lot of ways, our work doesn't change at all. We're doing the same thing no matter what happens. And whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump or somebody else in the White House, there's still babies being aborted and there's still moms who need to hear a voice of compassion before they make that choice that right. they can't take back and walk through the doors of an abortion center. Right. So, you know, I, th I think that's important to have that perspective because as much as we absolutely have to fight for every single life of an unborn child. My father believed that. Um, he believed strongly in the need to compromise when necessary on laws uh, in order to save children and rather than leave them unsaved uh, and all of those different things that we do. Um, but we have to recognize that, you know, as important as those laws are, as many lives as they save, it's really a marginal attack on, on abortion that we're engaged in. For example, you know, Joe Biden, uh, one of his first acts in office was to re-reverse the Mexico City, you know, policy. Or maybe we should say re-re-re-re-re-reverse it, which is every administration <laughs> right. back and forth changes that policy. Our oceans. Now we are again. And that's horrible. It's unjust to the American people. But it really is only a marginal impact on international abortions. You know, the real problem of legal abortion under any framework that leads to hundreds of thousands of children being legally killed, that remains intact. Even if Joe Biden gives a little more money to Planned Parenthood or a lot more money to Planned Parenthood, or even if the next administration comes around and takes that money back again, our, our main job still 
stands before us, which is protecting the life of every child. I, again, I don't mean to minimize the importance of every effort that we can make legally, but our work on the front lines is the same. And that is what we absolutely have to continue. So uh, Joe also wrote another book, a memoir, Racketeer for Life, Fighting the Culture of Death from the Sidewalk to the Supreme Court. Uh, my copy, which is around oh. somewhere. Well, I don't know where it is right now. Oh, okay. Uh, needless to say, it, it does exist uh, in the in the universe. But uh, yeah, could you could you maybe talk a little bit about that book? I, I noticed that one I think is out of print too, because I, I don't think I was able to find a a, a copy, uh, or at least on Amazon. Maybe it's available elsewhere. Hmm. But I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah, it's it's in print. Uh, oh, we're it's tan. It's on uh, tan books. The uh, Pro Life Action League. I just looked it up. It's on uh, your web store for your organization. That's okay. right. And I, I, I hope we've updated it to say, to make it clear, you're not going to get a signed copy because we used to, uh, I wish I yeah. had, I wish I had had him sign a case and just put it to one side. I, I mm. didn't though. you know, you don't like to think of your parents passing and prepare too much for it, but right. yeah, that book yeah. racketeer for life. Um, what is the subtitle? It's um, racketeer for life, uh, fighting the culture of death from the sidewalk to the Supreme court. So this book, it's an amazing memoir. It tells the story of, of, of his early life, what inspired him to have such a passion for children and their safety, um, how he founded the league, and just incredible adventures along the way about how he and a, a cabal of pro-life activists managed to get the Republican Party to make uh, a pro-life plank in their platform and the shenanigans that went behind that. It's a, just an incredible journey. Yeah. Did Joe ever ever have any interactions with uh, Francis Schaefer? Because I know he was pretty big on on helping, I think, getting the Republican Party more active in the pro-life movement as well. Yes. Um, in fact, the foreword of his first book, uh, Closed, hmm. was written by Francis, uh, Frank, Frankie Schaefer. Oh, not sure which Francis Schaefer we're talking about there because the sun kind of went off the rails. I'm not sure which one. But <laughs> yeah, I get, I I get lost that. in that history. But, but yeah, I mean, he he rubs shoulders with just about anybody you can think of in the pro-life and Christian conservative movements over the course of his career. Uh, so Joe's activism, then history of activism, even stretches back before 1973. You mentioned that he marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma. Mm-hmm. Does uh, Does Joe put a lot or, or did, when uh, when he was here did he did he put uh, a lot of the things that he learned from the Martin Luther King Jr marches for, from the civil rights era into uh, the activism that he did for the pro life movement yeah um so he used everything that he had to hand uh in his pro life ministry uh, from Martin Luther King, he saw the power of mobilizing regular people, of making a public witness. So he very much wanted to be out in public. He didn't want his pro-life work to be limited to the classrooms where he might be invited you know, to give a genteel speech or the politicians' offices that he might be lucky enough to get an invitation into. He took his message right out to the street, just like King did. He was inspired by King's you know, letter to Birmingham from Birmingham jail about civil disobedience and the need to, to fight unjust laws. Um, and, um, and so, you know, that is, that was one avenue of inspiration. Another, oddly enough, was, um, this is going to sound kind of weird, but he took a page out of the Illinois Nazi party's playbook. Oh, 
When my father worked, he worked for a short time for actually, no, for about four or five years for the city of Chicago public relations department. And at one point, his uh, boss said, look, there's this um, there's this Illinois Nazi Party hotline. People can call up and get a message, you know, anti-Semitic message or whatever every day. And let's um, let's shut them down. We shouldn't allow these Nazis to be uh, sharing their 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 message. Well, my dad looked into it and saw what he could do to shut them down and found out that, in fact, under the law, you couldn't. Um, to this day, you can talk about anything you want to over the phone. A little harder on Facebook or Twitter, as some right. of the lifers are finding out sometimes. But um, when he started the, the you know, when he started with Illinois Rights Life, it might have even been before that, he decided to use the same trick of a call-in hotline. And that he was running that hotline up until the week he died. Um Writing, you know, putting out a message. And originally it was every day. Eventually he went to uh, a, a different schedule as the Internet came around and people were able to get information other ways. But for many years, that thing was ringing off the hook all day long as pro-lifers from around the country called Joe Scheidler's hotline every day to find out what was hot, what they needed to know about, what they should be thinking about, what actions were taking place, where they needed to be in order to uh, participate in a protest. So, uh that was another one of the, you know, tricks that he learned from a funny source and made great use of. So yeah. he was he was willing to use any tool or trick that he could find to try to fight for the lives of unborn children. Even though we obviously wouldn't agree with the with what the Nazi party would stand for. Sometimes you can actually learn some good some good tricks to help adjust the, uh, yeah. the, the views of society from from the playbooks of other movements that you might not agree with. So I think right. that's very exactly. strategic. We have to look at their playbook. And there's times that I've seen Planned Parenthood borrowing stuff from us. And I've been like, there, there you go. They, they looked at my <laughs> website and they put up their thing. Um, on the issue of the, of the, of the Nazis, uh, there's a, a story in Racketeer for Life that um, I think is especially sort of meaningful these days. Uh, this is a story from before my father was, uh, was born, I believe. Um, in Hartford City, Indiana, the uh, local uh, Ku Klux Klan was oh was organizing and um they were not only a uh, a racist organization they were also an anti-catholic uh, an anti-semitic organization and my uh at one point my grandfather my grandfather scheidler and his uh father-in-law uh grandpa personally um, got together to foil the kkk in hartford city they found out that the list of KKK members, which nobody knew because they always wore those big robes, right? They could, right. Sometimes they could recognize some of the shoes that they saw. But they knew that the barber in town had the list of members of the KKK. So uh, Grandpa personally went to get a haircut. And Grandpa Shidler, who was at that time a young, young married man, you know, his early 20s, uh, snuck into the back of the barbershop and hid out there until it closed. And then rifled around and found the list of KKK members in the barbershop. And then they <laughs> confronted the barber and said, we're going to publish this list of KKK members' names in the p newspaper if you don't disband. And they decided to disband the KKK rather than be exposed to the light of day. Wow. So um, there again, another, another technique to be used. My father has many exciting stories of sneaking into things. National Abortion Federation meetings, for example. Oh, wow. Um, before David DeLyden never thought of it, before David Lydon was born, my dad was sneaking into National Abortion Federation meetings and, and finding out what they were up to and what they were saying about us and what their plans were going to be. 
Uh, one thing, one other thing I did come across as I was doing some research for our discussion today is that Joe actually retrieved fetal remains from garbage dumpsters in the back of a vital med pathology laboratory in Chicago and stored them respectfully until a proper burial could be given to them. That's right. Um, the, the That story is an amazing one. And I, I want to recommend another book uh, about that by Monica Miller. Uh, Monica Miliano Miller, who uh, is a veteran pro-life activist, worked very closely with my dad from her college days back in the 70s. She tells the story in her book, Abandoned, about recovering these bodies and, and having them filled up, filling up her apartment uh, in Milwaukee. She was trying to find bishops who would be willing to bury them, um, an ordeal of many years. At one point, these corpses were stored in the playhouse that my dad built for my sisters in our backyard because there was nowhere else to put them at the time, and they needed to go somewhere during the winter. So uh, it was an incredible time um, when abortion facilities would simply throw the corpses of babies into dumpsters. Um, there was a security guard at Vital Med Lab in uh, suburbs of Chicago who knew that these boxes on the loading dock were filled with baby corpses, and he was terribly troubled by it. And he contacted a local pregnancy center that reached out to in turn, my father, they organized a raid, a, a midnight raid on um, this loading dock and effectively stole these bodies. In fact, they were sued by the abortion clinics uh, for stealing property out of one of the dumpsters of an abortion facility. They won that case because you threw it away. It's not yours anymore. You clearly did not intend to keep it as property. Um, and, and we were able to bury those babies. And in 2013, in connection with Monica's group, Citizens for a Pro-Life Society and uh, Priests for Life, we began to hold the annual National Day of Remembrance for Aborted Children in September. Mm -hmm. Every September, second Saturday of September, we hold this event. And it's a real opportunity to, uh, for so many things. I mean, it was an opportunity to share some of these stories about uh, the kind of adventures involved in, in this sort of ministry, but also the, uh, uh, the compassion that... Uh, we have to have for these children. It makes abortion very, very, very real when you behold the corpse of an aborted baby with your own eyes. Uh, and they can take pictures of that and show it to others. Um, so burying these children and contemplating what their lives might have meant, these nameless, faceless children who were buried sometimes by the thousands, um, and, uh, and then were memorialized. It's become an opportunity for women and men who've been involved with abortion to seek healing. I remember one day, a woman came up to me after one of our memorial services with tears in her eyes, and she was just overwhelmed with gratitude. She had found out the previous week that her first grandchild was aborted. She found out because a bill came from the insurance company, and uh, that was how she discovered a, her daughter had, had even been pregnant. She was, her heart was so heavy because she didn't want the girl's dad to know about the abortion and have him think of her badly. So she was carrying this wound around herself trying to help her daughter with post-abortion information and stuff, but being allowed to come and mourn for her grandchild and pray for her daughter with a community of people in a cemetery where babies were buried was profoundly moving. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that, that's sort of the, the end point of all of this is, is not just to make a big story in the, in the media and get a lot of publicity. It's to really mourn for these babies and to really pray for those who have been wounded by abortion. Uh, that ministry is, is essential and uh, always very central to my father's work. 
Yeah, I, I'm a little surprised that uh, that the organization would actually sue your father over this because it seems like there'd be the potential for, you know, because uh, oftentimes pro-abortion organizations want to keep, you know, what the aborted fetuses look like uh, hidden. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised because yeah. that kind of thing would have had the potential of other people, you know, in the courtroom or potentially the media seeing what they actually look like. Yeah, it was a puzzler that they decided to do that. But, you know, they were they were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do we let these guys get away with yeah. exposing us and maybe we can stop them from doing it in the future? Or do we make this a big issue in the paper? And it, it really backfired on them because it brought in a ton of publicity about what they were doing and and made them look really bad that they were trying to, you know, claim that the corpses of their victims were property that we had stolen. Really strange. Nathan, do you have any other any other questions? Yeah, actually, just kind of based on that, I was going to ask, did your father uh, do any work with Greg Cunningham from Center for Bioethical Reform about abortion images? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Greg and my dad were good buddies. And, um, you know, Greg, uh, Greg and my dad were just on the same page with the importance of showing the victims of abortion out in the public square. Yeah. Um, and uh my dad was always very gratified whenever anybody took on that ministry, you know, Center for Bioethical Reform Canada, uh, Abort 67, uh, Created Equal, and all these other groups that are willing to go out and do this toughest of pro-life jobs, standing out in the public square and showing those pictures. Um, So uh, yeah, I mean, (laughs) name name a pro-life figure. My dad probably collaborated with him at some point. Yeah. yeah, our uh, mine and Clinton's uh, boss and also our pro-life mentor, Scott Klusendorf, uh, had a story about how your dad helped him get encouraged yeah. to get more involved. Yeah, I, I I was really touched to see Scott at the wake and um, yeah. was really uh, was really glad to have a few minutes with him. Um, and he told me about how when he was very, very fresh and young uh, pro-life apologist, he was giving a talk at some kind of a nationwide pro-life event or other. And he recognized my father and mother in the audience. And he couldn't understand why with all the panels of speakers around, why are they coming to my talk? And he's actually a little nervous. You know, what are they doing here? They're making me nervous. After the talk, my dad came up to him and said, you're really great. This is amazing. You need to do this more. You know, you, this is this is fantastic stuff. So much encouragement. He loved to see somebody who was good at this. Because, my, you know, honestly, my father always, he never felt like he'd done enough. He never did. He was up to his dying day. He, he was, you know, didn't feel like he'd done enough, given how evil abortion is. And um, the fact that other people would do things that were effective, you know, a guy like Scott Klusenorf coming along and being so good at explaining what's wrong with abortion to people who are coming from a completely different place ideologically, just warmed his heart. He thought, oh, I'm no good at that, but boy, this guy sure is. And uh, I love hearing those stories. I, 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 I feel like... Uh, one of the great blessings of of uh, of this past couple of weeks since he passed away has been uh, finding out more about the way that my dad and you know, my like Scott. When I first started the pro life movement is when I had a Students for Life club in my college, and it was I got connected with Greg Cunningham at Center for Bioethical Reform, and he encouraged me. He goes, you know, you're going to be doing this on your own, but be bold, get people talking about this issue. That I guess goes all the way back to your dad and how he was encouraging people to do that. Yeah, there's a you know there's an ethos in the movement, and I, I feel like the Pro-Life Action League really has sought to live by my father's uh, uh, you know 
determination never to hold a grudge and always to get along with everybody. And, uh, and, and, and I've tried to do the same. I mean, there's to this day, there's rivalries in the movement. People don't like each other. And this guy doesn't approve of that guy's method or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've really, and it's not, it's not my instinct. I'm more my mother in that way. She, my mother's a little more willing to write people off. I don't want to make her sound bad. I mean, she's a great lady, but she's a little more irascible. You know, my dad, uh, he just was incapable of holding a grudge. And uh, he taught me a lot about that. He made me a much better pro-lifer than even I could have been, you know? I'm a little bit curious because I'm uh, looking on the website for Pro-Life Action League about sidewalk counseling because I've recently started sidewalk counseling myself. What are your recommendations on that for somebody who's wanting to get more involved? Like, what do you recommend as a game plan for them? And what do you recommend for how to go about that? Well, uh, sidewalk counseling was always uh, the number one pro-life action that you can do and that the pro-life action league advocated for sidewalk counseling is chapter one of closed for a reason because he thought that really was the most important thing that we could do to be there offering assistance at the abortion facilities uh for someone trying to get trained in sidewalk counseling now the pro-life action league has some resources on that um we have some things on our our uh, youtube channel uh, some training manuals and, and videos and things like that um but probably the best thing that a, a new sidewalk counselor can do is to shadow an, an experienced sidewalk counselor. Mm, Spend yeah. time with somebody who's been at it for a while, who's not gotten burnt out, and who has uh, uh, had some success. Uh, beyond that, there are some other organizations out there. There's the group Sidewalk Advocates for Life, yeah, run by Lauren Muzika. I'm uh, one of their uh, on their board of advisors. They do really great work and have wonderful training materials. Uh, the uh, the group uh, Equal Rights Institute. Uh, founded by Josh Brom. They mm-hmm. also have a, a master course, they call it, in sidewalk counseling, a video series. Yeah, I'm taking that class. Yeah, so there, there are resources available for, for learning, but uh, talking to counselors who have experience, especially experience at the abortion facility you want to counsel at, uh, that's, that's especially helpful because every abortion facility is different. You know, uh, what are the police like in this district? Uh, where are the property lines at this building? What do the businesses next door think about it uh what kind of trouble are you going to have with pastors by here when does the abortionist show up these are all very practical questions that you can learn from those who are experienced with sidewalk counseling at at the facility that you're interested in counseling at um as far as like the business of counseling itself i can offer some tips but i have to confess that much like my dad i'm an awful sidewalk counselor i don't think Hmm. i'm particularly called to that to that particular ministry for whatever reason, though I do it. I do make my attempt. I've got my regular times that I go out. Um, but some of the tips that I would give from my experience watching others and, and being out there myself, mm-hmm. really try to put the focus on the woman and her worries. We make a mistake in if we try to put the focus on the baby. The woman has psychologically disconnected from the child by the time she arrives at the abortion facility. She does not think of it as a baby because she can't. She thinks of this as a baby, then what she's about to do is killing someone. And so she has been, she's been screwing herself up to, to come out to the abortion facility. We don't know if she's there because she's uh, you know, a, a, an immoral person who sleeps around and just doesn't give one damn, and this is her 13th abortion. Or if she was abused by a step uncle or something and is desperate to, to, to get out from under uh, whatever 
horrible situation she's in. She's been threatened with being kicked out of her home by her husband. This is her sixth child, and they're struggling to make ends meet. We don't know anything about her um, or how she's thinking about this. But what we do know is that she doesn't want to be there. Almost no woman wants to be in an abortion facility. And so we have to appeal to her where she's at, worried, frightened, scared. Um, we have to talk in such a way that she's willing to listen. You know, crying out over a bullhorn about not murdering your baby is a way to guarantee she will run in through the doors of the abortion facility. And I've right. seen it. We have a group, um, you guys, I'm sure are familiar with the, the knuckleheads at a, the a, 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 a Abolish Human Abortion Group. I don't yeah. even want to talk about them publicly because they publicly because they get off on it. They love the controversy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've seen their bullhorns and their, you know, I'm on board with showing the victims of abortion, but not standing right next to where we're trying to sidewalk council women. I've seen the women pick up the pace and run into the abortion facility because of the anti-abortionists who are behaving so badly. We have to be willing to meet the women where they at they're at. We have to be we have to be willing to pretend that everything's normal about being in an abortion clinic. I mean, I get it. the first thing I say when I see someone get out of the car is good morning. Well, it's not a good morning. It's not a good morning for them. They're on their way to get an abortion and they don't even think it's a good morning. They might think it'll be better later after the abortion and their problem is supposedly solved. Mm-hmm. And it's not really a good morning for me. What am I doing? I'm trying to stop people from having abortions and failing most of the time. But I still say good morning because it's a polite thing to say and it opens the conversation. So we have to be willing to swallow our pride and meet the woman where she's at, to greet her cordially, to tell her our name, to say we're here to talk, invite her to take some literature. It has to be an invitation. It has to be done compassionately. Or it will not work. Yeah, and that's what uh, we found at ours. Um, I sidewalk counsel at a couple of local clinics, and that's what we have found is that when we talk to people and we say, hey, good morning, we're sorry if this is a hard day for you, that's what gets people to stop, and they're going, oh, you know, you guys aren't out here being cruel. You aren't out here being jerks. You actually genuinely care about me mm-hmm. as a person. Mm-hmm. And we've had some really meaningful conversations with people over that. That's right. We, we always have to, we have to be willing to let God open doors for us. And we can't do that if we're trying to, you know, bulldoze through with our own methods. Yeah, I've actually written quite a bit on abolish human abortion, their philosophy and flawed views of theology and things like that. And LTI is pretty much on the same page. We don't like to talk about them publicly because they really do thrive on on the controversy, as, as you say. And uh, Josh Brom is actually my very first pro-life mentor. And I've actually been trying to get Jacob Nels on our program to talk more extensively about sidewalk counseling. So uh, as soon as we can work out a date for that, that's something uh, we'll definitely have coming up. So for those, yeah, so for those who listen yeah. to our, our program, uh, keep an eye out for that because uh, I'm not a sidewalk counselor. I know Nathan's done a bit of it, but I, I'm more of like the academic philosophy type and sidewalk counseling just yeah. is not my strength. So I really want to get Jacob on here to... Uh, to talk about the sidewalk counseling, because I know he has a wealth of information that he'll be able to bring. And he's one of the best experts on that issue. I've learned a lot from him, and I'm kind of with Clinton on that. I like, I focus more on a lot of the philosophy and understanding the arguments for abortion, but it was very, it was a very unique experience getting out there and getting boots on the ground in that manner. I mean, I used to do activism on my own campus, but this was an entirely different step. And like you said, you know, having to change that mentality to say, Hey, you know, we're here to help the woman who's going in there right now. And yeah, I remember one time when I was a kid, um, 
I was uh, at a protest in Chicago, Americans Women, American Women's Medical Center. It's still there doing abortions. Um, it's such an old abortion, such a shabby old abortion facility that the phone number on their marquee doesn't even have the area code on it. Oh. Uh, and it says, you know, pregnancy service is coming soon. It's been saying that for like 30 years Jeez. to make it seem like they care about birthing babies sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, we were out there at a picket and I cried out to a woman who was going inside something like, well, baby murderer or something like that. And my dad pulled me aside. He said, Eric, we never talk to women going into abortion clinics like this. Uh, we have to reach out to them kindly. They're going to run away if we, if we scream at them. So we just can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I took that lesson to heart. And looking back on it now, I'm very grateful. As a kid, I'm sure I felt embarrassed and like, why is my dad coming down on me? But I'm grateful that he, uh, that he shared that with me, not only because it was a lesson that I need to, needed to learn, but it also showed me who he was and the attitude that he brought to this kind of pro-life outreach. And um, it's, it's a, an approach I would like to share with the whole movement. Yeah. Well, uh, before I, I get to my, my final question for you, Eric, I do have a couple of things I'd like to read. A couple, or a couple of uh, pro-life leaders on Facebook had uh, posted a, a tribute on their Facebook wall about Joe Scheidler. And I thought it might be appropriate to, to read a couple of those. And I, I, got, I got their permission to share it. Uh, this first one is from Scott Klusendorf. He says, this one stings. A true hero, Joe Scheidler, founder of the Pro-Life Action League, died today at 93. Joe devoted his life to direct action, saving children and exposing the reality of abortion. Francis Schaeffer sang his praises in the 80s and for good reason. He personally shut down dozens of abortion clinics and presented the visual reality of abortion to millions during his life's work. He was a giant to me. And he was a humble giant. In 1993, when I was a nobody just getting started in pro-life work, Joe sat in on one of my workshop talks at a pro-life conference at Biola University. I was floored that he would do that when there were bigger names to hear during that same time slot. He pulled me aside after and said, young man, you have a gift. Keep using it. I drove home on cloud nine. Why would such a giant like Joe even speak to me, let alone affirm me? I thought that maybe, just maybe, I could make a difference. From that point forward, he stayed in touch and always treated me like a co-equal, though I never did, and never will, accomplish what he did for the unborn. He exemplified true humility and greatness. I can only guess how many children are alive today because of Joe. Well done, sir. I can only hope to finish as well as you did. You are loved and appreciated. Prayers for your family. I salute you while shedding a tear. And this next one comes from David B. Wright, who we mentioned earlier as the founder of 40 Days for Life. David said, 20 years ago, I was about to quit the pro-life movement. I was serving as volunteer board chair for a local group in Texas, the Coalition for Life, founded by my friend Lauren Guide. During my board tenure, local abortion numbers were increasing while our volunteer numbers and donations were decreasing. I felt like a failure. At our 2001 Coalition for Life fundraising banquet, Lauren announced that my term on the board had ended and that I was moving on to other endeavors. I was incredibly relieved. But then our keynote speaker took the stage, legendary pro-life leader Joe Scheidler, founder of the Pro-Life Action League. During Joe's captivating presentation, he articulated the spiritual imperative for people of faith and conscience to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. He powerfully explained that we're all called to protect pre-born children, the most helpless, voiceless members of our society, and their mothers. I'll never forget what Joe said next. I believe there's someone here in this room who God is calling into full-time pro-life work. It felt like Joe Scheidler was talking straight to me. 
After the banquet, several of us gathered around Joe to ask questions and glean advice and wisdom on how to save lives, protect mothers, and end abortion in our community. Two weeks later, I answered God's call, which Joe Scheidler had delivered at that banquet, and quit my pharmaceutical sales job to jump into full-time pro-life work. Joe became a friend, mentor, and hero over the next two decades. Every time I'd see him, he'd grin and call me, Young Dave. Joe and his, and his wife, Anne, were two of the first people I shared my vision of 40 Days for Life with, when it was still just a fledgling idea. They encouraged me to do it, though later Joe told me with a hearty laugh that he'd initially thought that it wouldn't work, but was glad I proved him wrong. Looking back, I realized that, had it not been for Joe Scheidler, I would never have taken that step of faith to leave the business world. I would never have led the Coalition for Life. The local abortion center, later directed by Abby Johnson, might never have closed. There would never have been a 40 Days for Life, and all the lives saved, abortion centers closed, and workers helped out of the abortion industry. I would never have traveled the world to collaborate with thousands of selfless, heroic leaders who are saving lives, protecting women, improving their communities, and building God's kingdom here on earth. Today, I paid my final respects to Joe Scheidler at his funeral in Chicago, and I was surrounded by hundreds of other ordinary people who were likewise inspired by Joe to do extraordinary things. I couldn't help but wonder how many lives have been saved, directly and indirectly, because of Joe Scheidler. Only God knows, but I suspect it's well into the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Never underestimate what God can do through one person devoted to him. Simply look to the life, impact, and legacy of Joe Scheidler. Rest in peace, dear Joe. Well done, good and faithful servant, young Dave. He always used to like to call people young whatever, young Scott, young Dave. Well, he's, yeah, he's he's definitely uh, helped countless uh, numbers of people being be able to do the work that we do. And so he's definitely going to very much be missed and He's done great work for the pro-life movement and for the kingdom of God in general. So we really appreciate you coming on here to talk to us about your father. One thing I did come across was that uh, Wednesday, February 3rd at 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 6 p.m. Pacific is going to be a webcast tribute to the life and legacy of Joe Scheidler. Did you want to maybe uh, talk a little bit about that to, you know, promote it a little bit? Yeah, we're going to be sharing some stories from his life. Uh, I'll have my brother Peter on, who uh, collaborated with him on his memoir, Racketeer for Life. My mother, Anne, will be talking about the founding of the Pro-Life Action League. My sister, Catherine, will be on there to tell you about, uh, (laughs) I don't want to give too much away. (laughs) My dad found a way to embarrass her massively when she was uh, in high school. And uh, and she deeply resented it at the time and came around to change her mind. We'll tell you that story. We're going to hear from people like Father Frank Pavone, Monica Miller, Dr. Tony Levitino, an abortionist who came over to the pro-life side, and so many others. Uh, people are offering tribute videos. We're going to be telling stories. It's going to be a, a beautiful evening of celebration of Joe Scheidler's legacy, but also looking forward to the future. How do we build on that legacy? What was Joe Scheidler's vision for the pro-life movement moving forward in the 21st century? And you can sign up for that and uh, be involved and not miss out. If you go to prolifeaction.org, prolifeaction.org, and sign up for the tribute. It's taking place again Wednesday, February 3rd at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And uh, it's sure to be a moving evening. Uh, not only looking back at the past, but looking forward to and being encouraged for the future. Well, great. So uh, I'm going to put the names of the books and the author uh, uh, of the of the book written by uh, Monica Miller in the in the information section under the YouTube video and in the notes section of our of our podcast, so that you can look those up and and check those out. And I'll, I'll also post a link to uh, to where you can register for this uh, for this event. 
coming up as well that we just talked about. So yeah, the direct link is prolifeaction.org slash tribute. Great. Eric, where can people find you online? You can find me at prolifeaction.org. You can find me on Facebook uh, at uh, at prolifeaction. I'm, I also have a, my own page. Uh, it's a, I think it's at prolife. Eric Scheidler or something like that. Um, and uh, you can just look Google for it. Look for Eric J. Scheidler. That's the play, page where I talk about pro-life stuff. The regular Eric Scheidler page is just going to be mountain biking pictures and uh, puns. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, you can find me there. I'm on Twitter a little tiny bit. Uh, our pro-life action channel is more active than I am personally on Twitter. But uh, you can find us there as well. Yeah, ever since I became Facebook friends with uh, Scott Glusendorf, uh, Kevin Bywater, and the late Mike Adams, uh, I've really had to step up my pun game. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> yeah. Scott is also a great trainer in uh, the art of punnery. Yeah, I've seen that's that. true. In that firsthand. <laughs> yeah. Well, Eric, uh, thank you again for coming on here and talking to us about your dad. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, it's always, uh, you know, it's tough to lose a father, but it's been incredibly uh, yeah. enriching for me to be able to share uh, his story and, and learn so much more about him myself. I've got, I feel like I've, I know him better now than I did two weeks ago. Those of you who uh, who are religious, please uh, join us in keeping the Scheidlers and their their friends and colleagues in prayer uh, as well during this uh, difficult time. Thank you. If you uh, if you enjoyed this discussion and uh, would like to get the the word out about Joe Scheidler and the legacy he's left and the work that he's done, uh, please share this uh, discussion around social media, wherever you frequent, Facebook, uh, Twitter, wherever. Uh, you can also rate and review us on our Facebook page, on iTunes, and I believe Blog Talk Radio has a, a way to you know rate and review us as well. And uh, if you'd like to help see this podcast grow, uh, again, this podcast will always remain free. We never want to put any of the information we have behind a paywall. But if you'd like to help uh, keep this podcast free uh, and would like to help us uh, become the best podcast we can be, you can help us with financial support by going to the LTI website, ProLifeTraining.com, and clicking on Donate on the menu at the top. Uh, make sure you put my name in the note section so LTI knows to put my na- uh, the money that you donate into my account. You can give a one-time gift or a monthly gift. And the uh, benefit of donating through LTI is that donations are tax-deductible. An alternate way that you can give financially is through Patreon. We've started a Patreon for the podcast. You can go to Patreon.com slash ProLifeThinking. And you can become a financial supporter. And the benefit of donating through Patreon is that there are a lot of really great perks that come along with it, up to and including private one-on-one training with me for one or two hours uh, a month, depending on uh, on how much you you donate. And uh, that can be anything from uh, me role-playing a pro-choice person to help your confidence in discussions. I can uh, give you feedback on on a project you're working on or, or whatever you would like to do. So uh, if you'd like to consider helping us uh, with financial support, those are some ways that you can do that. So we're still working on some upcoming uh, upcoming guests, and we'll keep you updated on those as soon as we get those booked. Uh, find us on, on our Facebook page, find us on MeWe, and you'll be able to keep updated with everything that's going on with the Pro-Life Thinking podcast and YouTube broadcast. So once again, on behalf of the Pro-Life Thinking podcast, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.